to steady first his breath, his pulse, and then his fingers and his eyes to join the text he copied and his nib in one taut line. At least it was a blessing to escape that stinking, jolting coach. He gripped the railing, filled his lungs, and faced downstream. The ship was weighted low with cargo. Passengers who had no railing clung to staves nailed to the central hold. They were mere specks upon the river rushing toward the sea. The vessel pitched and rolled, and he could feel the shiver of that mighty force beneath his feet. The river seemed to fling him backward, down, with every bend that hauled him closer to his home. When he was young, he'd thought the Rhine ships looked like ladies' slippers, flat and low along the prow, then rising aft to curl like some outlandish petal at the captain's back. He'd been a boy the last time he saw these shores, yet he returned now as a man, a man of letters, a clericus, a scribe. He bore the tools of his profession in a pouch slung like a quiver at his side, the sealed horn of ink, his quills and reeds, his bone and chalk and chamois. The valley of the Rhine peeled off to either side in banks of green and gold, and farther up outcroppings rose, perched high above the river like so many gnomes. An ancient peaty smell mingled sickeningly with the pomades and the late September sweat of bodies crammed together at the rail. All he knew was that the matter was urgent. His father would not have called him back to celebrate the birth of his new son, although a child this late in life was wondrous news. Nor was he likely to have picked Peter a wife. First, get yourself established, Johann Fust had always said, and then you'll have your choice of brides. The only clue lay in a postscript in his looping hand. I've met a most amazing man. The Seine had smelled of chalk and stone, a sharp and thrilling city striving. The Rhine was wider, darker, rooted in the forest and the field. Peter breathed in its odor, the odor he had known most of his life. They were not far from Gernsheim now where he'd been born and raised and tended sheep, where he'd been orphaned and then saved. Fleetingly, he saw the farm and Father Paul. He never would forget the old priest's palsied paw and then his own small fist, tracing out his letters in fulfillment of his mother's dying wish. He looked down at that very hand clamped now upon the railing, that hand that was the master of a dozen scripts, it was a perfect tool. With it he stood at the Sorbonne, right at the apex of the world. And what a world it was! Even decades later he could taste the feeling of that year of jubilee. The Holy Roman Empire pulsed like a rich man with a fever, fearful yet exalted at the prospect of the light. All Christendom hung in the balance, waiting, there was a new pope on St. Peter's throne, and some strange new spirit rising. The schism of three popes had been laid to rest. The cardinals had bowed at last to the authority of Rome. The new Italian pontiff, Nicholas V, had vowed to sweep the vile world clean. He'd called his jubilee to bring the faithful back to penitence and undo years of plunder ruled by greed.
That new wind was sweeping through the markets and the lecture halls, the streets and seats of learning from Bologna up to Paris. It licked around the stools where new men labored at their quills, copying the texts that fed the best minds in the Western world. That wind had swept in masses of new students, lifted by prosperity and trade, all avid for their chance. It threw the scribes together in long ranks, writing madly to keep up with the demand. He'd felt the force of it up his own arm, lifting his eyes to heights he'd never dreamed, for he was one of these new men, these scholar-scribes. And then the wind stalled, stopped short by the thick brown band of the Rhine. Peter watched the other trading boats, as thick as krill upon the water, Merchants, moneylenders, bureaucrats, and priests, all servants of Mammon as much as of God. He knew for certain that the winds of change were dead upon the